beginning with Pentecost for tomorrow. So we'll be meeting, for those of you out there on the phone lines, at the same time we're meeting today at 1 o'clock, translated to your time. So Pentecost, tomorrow at 1. I had a little incident, I guess, that would make a sermonette uh, this week. I thought I'd at least mention it at the beginning here before we get into uh, the rest of it per se, but there's, I, I think, some... Well, it, puts, it gave me some thoughts anyway. I had a, a very young goat who was too young really to be bred that was uh, exposed too early and uh, was due to have babies at only eight, nine months of age. So I've been concerned because I had four of those. And uh, one of them had some babies the other day, and she had three. So for a first-timer and being that young... Uh, Pretty salutatory, I suppose. Uh, but one of them was born with its hind legs and, and hips paralyzed. It couldn't move them at all. And uh, it was really sad. Two of them are healthy. One was a little weak, and I fed it a little. And when it got on Mama, it, it got all right. But this one, there's, there's just was no helping. Uh, its front end was eager, wanted to eat, and after two couple of days of me feeding it and walking by, it'd scream every time I came through, because uh, it wanted to live. It wanted to be healthy. It wanted to be happy. It wanted to be everything that a goat's supposed to be, but the rear end wouldn't work. And uh, I got thinking about that a little bit. You know, in the Old Testament, when you brought a sacrifice before God... It couldn't be blemished. It couldn't be blind or deaf or harmed in any way. It had to be a good specimen of the species in order for God to accept it as a sacrifice. Now, there's some very good reasons for that, in part that had God made it where you could bring that kind, then everybody would have gotten rid of all their junk animals, given them to God. And then they would have begun to disrespect God by bringing that which was not of value to them. It would have complied, but it didn't have real value to them. So when we make sacrifice to God, it needs to cost us something. In other words, it needs to have value to us. Whether it's our time, our offerings, our service to others, or whatever... If it costs us time, energy, uh, thought, uh, there's a cost involved any time you do something good. So that had to cost them something. And part of it was a deterrent for sin, <clears throat> in that when you did sin, you were supposed to bring a sin offering. And that sin offering had to be something that had value to you, otherwise there was no lesson in it. <clears throat> So there were some very good reasons God demanded that those sacrifices be of quality, of value. I couldn't have given that little goat with a paralyzed back end to God. Now, I grew quite fond of it in a couple of days because it was helpless and innocent and it had such a plaintive little cry to it 
wanted to be fed, wanted to be taken care of, wanted attention, and kind of broke my heart. I, I'm, I'm still more emotional now than I normally have been through life after what I've been through in the last year. I just came to acknowledge or realize that, I think, recently, that uh, my emotions are still very tender. But in any case, I couldn't help but think of us. Crippled, blind, deaf, if not physically, spiritually, and old, decrepit, all the above apply, I think, both spiritually and physically to us. And you know, you, you couldn't bring that kind of a sacrifice to God. But He takes to Himself that kind. He takes the weak, the base, uh, not the mighty, the noble. He takes that which is emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually crippled in one way or another. And that's the kind He calls. So it's not that he does that he looks down on or will not accept that kind. You couldn't bring that kind to him for your own sake, if nothing else. But he is willing to call that type of people. Now he does not expect them to stay blind and deaf and crippled. He expects them to grow, to overcome and to become mighty and noble, ultimately, if you will. So he's invested in us, just as I invested some time in that little goat, hoping that maybe the paralysis was temporary and that it might recover. You know, something in the birth might have put pressure on the spine or whatever. I, I had hope for it. But after about three days, I realized that it, it wasn't going to regenerate and uh, I had to put it down, and that hurt considerably. Now, God wants us to regenerate. We can't do it on our own. He has to give us His Spirit and His help so that we might get rid of the blindness, the crippleness, the mental <laughs> deficiencies, and all those things that we lack. And with His help, we can become what He is looking for. Those who absolutely refuse or cannot be regenerated, he is going to have to put down in the third resurrection. He said that. It will not be many, though. All Israel will be saved. God is very positive, and his plan is going to work for most people. So we can be encouraged in that. But uh, I couldn't help but think of us and what God is working to do in us to actually solve the problems that we have, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, and in every way, and get us to where He wants us to be, so that then when the world looks upon us, they won't see cripples. They will see that which has been fixed. And that will confound them, you see. He calls the weak in the base that it might confound the mighty and the noble of the world. So you're here to become a sign and a wonder to the world, to take that which you were and which we are and make us into something that can be a light to the world.
So, there's a lot there. Well, last week we came into a subject which I feel is timely and important for us to grasp and to realize that here in the end there has to be leadership, and I think throughout the church, uh, here and there, people have been looking for the kind of leadership that they thought would come from God, and some have proclaimed that they are that leadership come from God, and on and on it goes, Uh, but ultimately, that has to be, because it's in Scripture. And we examined last week then, in brief summary, uh, the types of Moses and Elijah there in Malachi and in in, uh, Matthew 17, and referring to the lives of Moses and Elijah. John the Baptist himself also became, uh, came as a type of Elijah, and then both of them are a type of one of those who is to appear here at the end time, Christ clearly showed. So, the Bible is full of examples of what we are to see. And I think we need to understand, because as I told you last week, 90% of the church, even though they're anticipating leadership from God, will not recognize nor accept it when it actually occurs. They'll go the other way. They'll say, nah, that can't be. So we need to expect that, that they will be rejected by 90% of those whom God has called. That, That just blows my mind. It's hard to grasp that we as a people when God finally does send someone, will not be willing to accept them. So let's learn a little bit more today about the leader to come that we are looking to see at some point and see if we can understand what type of person, in some respects, that might be, where he'll come from, and when it'll happen. Because there are clues to all of that in the Scriptures, and we've been over them. But I wanted to uh, emphasize that a little bit today and maybe put it in a little better perspective for us. I've I've showed you in the past that uh, Hezekiah and Herbert Armstrong fulfilled a similar position. That Hezekiah's life was uh, somewhat a model for what Herbert Armstrong would be and how that ended in Isaiah 39 with... uh, Hezekiah's sons being sent into Babylon as eunuchs, and Herbert Armstrong's ministry that he had trained went basically back into Babylon, and even those who did not go into Babylon but retained most of the true doctrine uh, are eunuchs, uh, powerless, cannot accomplish anything much. Uh, And that is reiterated in Zechariah 5, uh, where it says that it would be set on its base in Babylon by two unclean birds, uh, the Tkachas, and that it would have lead stuffed in its mouth so that it could no longer be heard. And that's basically what happened to Worldwide. It went right back to Babylon and has not been heard from really since. And even those who were retentive of truth uh, haven't been heard from much either. They're making a cry here and there, but nobody's listening. So that's the status of the church today at the end of Isaiah 39. Then if we go to 40, and we've been over it many times, uh, John the Baptist quoted Isaiah 40 when they asked him who he was. He says, are you he that is to come? Are you the Christ? No, that's not me. Uh, He said, I'm a voice of him that cries in the wilderness, 
to prepare the way of the eternal and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, he fulfilled that uh, before Christ's ministry started and then baptized him out there. And Christ said he would be a type of one to come at the end time. And these prophecies in Isaiah and all through are about the end time, as we well know. So there has to be someone crying in the wilderness, whether it be a physical wilderness or a spiritual wilderness. It's both, a famine of the word, and also the area that it would come from. Now, Herbert Armstrong was a voice, in that sense, crying in a wilderness. He was in a city of merchants, but that was certainly a spiritual wilderness in the city of the fallen angels, Los Angeles. Uh, and it was in the southwest United States where God raised that up. So again, it will be from the southwest, as Amos shows us, but uh, in a physical wilderness, not just a spiritual wilderness on top of it. And then it talks about bringing good tidings to Zion and to Jerusalem of the things that are to come that are going to be positive. Uh, so let's go on down here a little bit. And I'll pick it up. Where do I want to pick this up first? Uh, uh, some, someone will come proclaiming these things. In verse 19 of 41, he says, I will plant in the wilderness, he names seven trees, that they may see and know and consider and understand together. Now, Oak trees and fir trees don't talk to each other and understand. So obviously this is a type of churches or of people that will be planted in the desert. Uh, and those people will come to see and know and understand and become united and close, united to do something. So they'll all understand the same things. Now you can't take the splinters that are out there today and get them to agree and understand together. Because they have different viewpoints, different focuses, and so on and so forth. But these that God plants will see and understand together uh, because of the leader, leadership that he sends. Now let's understand, verse 25, <clears throat> he introduces that once the message is given, that he is going to raise up someone. Verse 25, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun, shall he call upon my name. So, whoever this is that we are looking for will be someone who was from the north originally, but he will come from the east when he comes. So, we know that uh, this has to be somebody who was raised probably in the northern parts of Ephraim, because... This is the nation that all these prophecies are talking about. And then he will come from his current location, which will be in the east. So we don't need to put names to this or try to speculate necessarily who it might be, but let's just examine what the Scriptures say and know that this isn't going to be someone coming from Alabama or Texas. This is somebody who was from the north, but when they come, they'll come from the east. <clears throat> so there's a clue right there. 
Um, let's go on down from there into that verse. He'll call upon God's name. So this isn't an unconverted man. This is a converted man from the east somewhere. And he shall come upon princes as upon mortar, and as the potter treads clay, mashes it, breaks it. <clears throat> All right. So... That's what's going to happen. Now, you read in Revelation 11 about all the plagues that will come. And they were the same plagues or the same things that Elijah did and the same things that uh, Moses did with the plagues on Egypt and so on. And name some of the same things that both Elijah and Moses did. So this is someone who will be put over the nations to bring plagues and so on and cause great distress and have power over them <clears throat> for three and a half years. Now reading on, who has declared from the beginning that we may know? Now God says, I'm going to send someone and this, these are some of the parameters, these are where he'll come from and this is some of what he will do. But look through the church, he says, who has declared this from the beginning that we might know what this is talking about? That we may say he is righteous. So it is going to be someone who is also righteous. And he says, who's told us about someone righteous? Yes, there is none that shows. Yes, there is none that declares. In other words, this story is not going to be known through the church. It's something that has to be told, but nobody seems to know the story. They're still thinking of airplanes and Petra, most of them. Uh, and they don't have the whole story. Even the ones who have a little bit of a clue don't get the whole thing. Yes, there is none that shows, there is none that declares, there is none that hears your words. Well, God says, I can say these things, but... Nobody gets it. Nobody understands. Verse 27, The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them. So he says, Nobody's not going to know the story, but one, the first, whoever the first is here, will say, Behold them. So he's not talking of just one, but of two. And we know there will be two who are the primary witnesses. And I will give to Jerusalem, that is the church, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, one that brings good tidings. You can go back. The subject hasn't changed. A voice crying in the wilderness. Just one is all that God will send that knows the story. And he will tell of them and will bring good tidings to the church that here is the answer. Here is the solution. Then he goes on to say, For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor. So God says, Before and after, there wasn't anybody, but I will send one to tell this story. Behold, they are all vanity, their works are nothing, their molten images are wind and confusion. So throughout the church, all the works that they try to brag about are not producing anything. Uh, they come in the front door and out the back door. Or they 
act interested when they hear a telecast or something, and then they come in and they stay two or three or four weeks or whatever, and then they're on their way again. So nothing in terms of a calling work is much being done anywhere. Eunuchs in Babylon, God says they will be. So, But he says the story will be told. Now let's go to... Uh, Forty-six, eleven. We'll beginning in verse nine. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. So he tells us now. Remember the things of old. This is a prophecy. Now we're to remember Moses. We're to remember Elijah. We're to remember the prophets says here in Isaiah 51, we're to look to uh, the root where we began, uh, Abraham and Sarah. And Hebrews 11, of course, says, look back, and we've gone over that. So he says, remember the things of the past, how I'm God, and there's none like me, the things that I've done in the past, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand... And I will do all my pleasure. So he even tells us in Isaiah 54 that I'm going to do all these things to bless you and I'm going to bring people, going to have a gathering. And he says it's like the story of Noah to me. He says, remember what I did with Noah and it's just as important to me in the end time as it was then. And it's going to happen just as surely. And poor old Noah thought it would never, ever get there. Year after year after year working on that boat. But it did come. And God says, it's just like Noah. It will come. My counsel will stand. I'll do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east. Now we have again, pictured here, someone coming from the east, pictured as a ravenous bird. Now remember, it just said that he'll come and tread the nations like a potter does the clay. What does a ravenous bird do? An eagle, uh, a hawk, even a raven. Uh, they, are, they tear flesh. Uh, they come down on that which uh, needs killed or has been killed in some cases and tear it all apart. And it says that that is the way that this man will come. The man that executes my counsel from a far country. So this is talking about somebody who is doing what God wants done. Yes, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. So notice this again says it will come from the east. Hearken to me, you stout-hearted that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. So an attestation here that someone's coming from the east, but he will come to Zion, which is where God's salvation will go out from. You read that again in Zechariah 2, an end-time prophecy about the end-time leadership and the gathering that comes with them. Now, let's notice a little more about this man uh, back in chapter 42. Now, he's going to come 
on princes and potters, I mean, on, like a potter does clay. But in chapter 42, we have some insight into the type of personality and character the man has as well. Behold my servant. Now, this is Christ speaking. says, Behold my servant. Now, in many cases, it's, it's dual. Uh, many of these prophecies are certainly about Christ himself as a servant of the Father. But it's also those who are a type, like Moses was a type of Christ as a lawgiver and so on, as we saw. So, this is someone he's speaking of here. Behold, my servant whom I uphold. So, this is somebody that is upheld by God, my elect. So, it's one of those who are counted among the elect. In whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now, isn't the job of the two ultimately to bring judgment against the Gentiles there in Revelation 11 with plagues and all kinds of things that happen? So, that's the reference. But here's something about the personality. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He's not uh, a loud-mouthed type person, not a bombastic-type person, apparently. A bruised reed shall he not break, a gentle type. Now, Christ is all those. People think of Jesus walking in the garden when you're alone and while the dew's on the roses, and, and he has that tender, gentle side to his personality. But then they tend to forget how he's going to come with his vesture dipped in blood, riding a white horse with a sword, and put down the nations and break every knee that will not bend. So there are many facets to his personality. But this individual will have some of the same characteristics that Christ has from the gentle side here. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. Uh, He shall bring forth judgment to truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged. Not someone who easily gives up either. Uh, Not going to be discouraged. Till he have set judgment in the earth, and the coast shall wait for his law. So, he brings the law of God as Moses did, and preaches the law of God. And ultimately, of course, this is Christ in the millennium, but we're talking here of end-time prophecies of someone who comes, who is a type of Christ, that does these things in a small way ahead of time as a witness to the world of the Christ that is to come and do it for the whole world. And that's what the message is that goes to the whole Gentile world. Is that you better quit following Satan and the beast and worship the God of creation because he's coming soon and the beast isn't going to last through that. So there has to be someone coming to tell that story and to do it with force and power like a potter mashes clay. So someone of a gentle Uh, nature for the most part, and yet who comes with the power of God. And we'll see that again here. I'm laying some groundwork here for some more scriptures later on that will give you the same type of insight that we're getting right here. And he'll be a light for the Gentiles in verse 6. So aren't we to be in Zion as a light to the world? Now, for a period of time, and we'll see this later on as well, that 
in verse 19, uh, well, he says in verse 18, Hear, you deaf people, and look, you blind, that you may see. Now, 90% of the people are not, as I said, going to recognize the leadership when it occurs. I think that's imperative that we focus a little bit here so that we might have a better idea of what to look for because most will miss it. So he says, listen, you blind and deaf. Then he talks about his servant here. And he says, who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is mature or perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? So it's talking about God's servant here who is blind and deaf. Now, we used to apply that to Herbert Armstrong, who was getting physically blind and deaf. And certainly, I think that it applied. And there was a certain amount of spiritual blindness and deafness there. There are a lot of things he didn't understand that we do now. But primarily, we, we thought of him as being, you know, he had his, his notes on a little card about that size, and each one had about one word on it. Uh, he, he was pretty much blind and, and deaf. But this is not physical blindness and deafness here. Verse 20. Seeing many things, but you observe not. Now, this man then will have seen and heard. Okay? He will know. He will have heard. But... Uh, seeing many things, but you observe not. So if you're blinded and deaf, you might hear something, but you don't really get it. And I think that this is speaking of this leader to come, that for a period of time, he is not going to believe or observe or grasp fully uh, his job or what it is, but at some point he will see. And I will show you in Scripture when he will see. Because he doesn't, as it says here, and the very fact that another Scripture shows when, shows that this means that he did not. Because if you do at this point, that means you didn't before then, right? Uh Seeing many things, but observe not, or doesn't grasp or fully understand. Opening the ears, but doesn't really hear. The eternal is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. So it does say he's a righteous man from the east. We already read that. So this is speaking of a righteous man here, who doesn't see and hear and grasp it all, until a certain point, which we'll get to. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. So as Moses, this man who has a righteous lifestyle, will magnify the law. He will be able to explain the law of God. Moses brought it. He explained it on a physical level and to some degree on a spiritual level. But this man will understand it spiritually and show us the magnification of it, even as Christ did. He's a type of Christ. So this man will magnify it to the world and say, you know, this is what God really is after. 
not just physical compliance, but the magnification that Christ taught. And the whole world has to hear that. They have to know the law of God to be judged by it, right? If you don't hear it, you're not responsible. So they're going to hear it, and then the judgment will come. So this witness, this Zerubbabel, as we shall see, uh, will cause them to hear and have the law magnified in their faces. So, he has a fairly mild personality, apparently. He also is a righteous man in God's estimation. And uh, he will also come with great power to tromp down the nations. We'll see that reiterated again here in a little bit. Now let's go to Ezekiel 17. Uh, this one depicts Herbert Armstrong and his work, just as those last chapters in the 30s of Isaiah do as well, and then goes on to another work. Ezekiel 16, most of it is about Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide Church of God, as we've gone over several times, and you know. But once that goes back into Babylon, uh, as verse 26 says, and it has done, again, Zechariah 5, <clears throat> and they'll fall by the sword and so on in verse 21. Then God is going to do something Himself after that. Now, verse 21 is basically fulfilled at this point. The whole chapter down through chapter, verse 21. Uh, not totally scattered yet, but pretty much fulfilled. Now, in verse 22... Thus says the eternal God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one. Now, we already read that it would be somebody of a fairly mild nature uh, that is not bombastic or whatever. A tender one and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. So God is going to set someone who is not big, not a tree in that sense, not somebody who's well-known, perhaps, but a tender young twig, somebody that he's been preparing that's come, that was from the north and is coming from the east and will become great in uh not fame, uh, being known throughout the world. Didn't start out that way, but will become that and bring judgment to the whole Gentile world. So, this is a young twig off the high cedar. This is, who is the highest cedar? That's Christ. This will be someone that has been developed in Christ's image, in Christ's way, as a type of Christ. Therefore, it had to be someone whom God would have judged to have been a righteous person. Now, you don't see that in both cases in Zechariah 3 and 4. We're talking about the main leader here. Uh, I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. Zion and Jerusalem. The heights of Zion. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. And you go through Psalms and you know that that's Zion, is where it will be planted. And that's where Christ says He's going to come and dwell 
with his uh, gathered people in the end time. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. <clears throat> now you remember that Herbert Armstrong was planted in good waters, good doctrine, and yet he did not grow into a tall cedar in that sense, but in more a bush. And the people look to him. Now here, they're going to look to Christ, who is the highest cedar. We looked more to Herbert Armstrong sometimes than we did to God. And there's one out there proclaiming himself to be the successor to Herbert Armstrong, who hardly preaches God at all. If you listen to his broadcast, he preaches Herbert Armstrong almost entirely. I'll not name names at the moment I have before. So this will be a goodly cedar that bears fruit. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing, and the shadow of the branches shall they dwell. He's going to bring people from north, south, east, and west, from around the world. Uh, so fowl of every wing. And all the trees of the field shall know. Now all the churches then will know <clears throat> that I the Eternal have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. So he took that which was there that was pretty good looking worldwide and has caused it to be destroyed. But here he's taking a cedar, a twig off a cedar, to grow into another cedar that has previously been dry, brings it to life. A dry tree that hasn't produced much. And then it comes alive. So, you're not looking at someone from a great big organization, I don't think, because this isn't something that came from that. It's something that was a twig, something small, and something that was dry, that was not producing much. Okay? I don't think we can expect a former evangelist, let's say. Uh, they're about all dead anyway, aren't they? <laughs> So this has to be somebody uh, that is not that well known by comparison, let's say. Uh, now let's go to Ezra. Now here is a historical record <clears throat> of what happened when, after 70 years of captivity, uh, Babylon was destroyed. And then Cyrus, Darius, uh, took over, and the Persians destroyed Babylon. And in the second year then of Darius, uh, they began to get together to, to build the temple. Now, this is in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and Ezra, we read that last time, <coughs> that he was stirred up and said, hey, I've got to do this. But it was in the second year that it actually began to happen. Preparations had to be done and so on. But Sheshbazar here in chapter 1 uh, was the Persian name for Zerubbabel. And we'll see here in chapter 3, verse 2, the seventh month, uh, this is uh, just before the Feast of Tabernacles or thereabout, they came together for the feast. And in verse 2, there stood up Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel. 
Now, this is interesting in that nearly all through the Scriptures, wherever you find this mentioned, Zerubbabel is mentioned first. He is in Haggai. Uh, But here, Joshua is mentioned first, who took the lead in building the altar of God, setting it up, getting it ready. Of course, he was the high priest. Uh, But he is mentioned first. But if you go on down, that changes. Chapter 4. No, chapter 3, verse 8. In the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, mentioned second year, see, that uh, again, began Zerubbabel and Joshua, the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren to go and, and build the temple, the work of the house of the eternal. Then in chapter 4, verse 2, then they came to Zerubbabel, and to the chief of the fathers, and said to them. So they came to Zerubbabel. And then in verse 3, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of the land said to them, these people who wanted to help, you've nothing to do with building the house of God. That's something that the called of God have to do. But Zerubbabel is mentioned first and takes the lead uh, most of the time. He didn't right there at the beginning in chapter 3. I think that's important to note. Chapter 5, verse 2. Then rose up Zerubbabel and Joshua, the son of Josadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So now this is a historical record. It's not particularly prophetic, except that there is a pattern here of history that would be brought forward into prophecy for the future. Okay? And we can refer back here to see the pattern and the way certain things were done and realize that there will be great similarities. It won't be done in exactly the same way by any means, but the historical record is always there because God works in patterns. Now, having established that, let's go to uh, well, let's go to Zechariah 3. Maybe I, maybe I don't want to go quite that far forward yet. Zechariah, as you know, uh, began to speak in the middle of the book of Haggai. And we see, if we thumb back very quickly to the first of Haggai, second year of Darius, as I pointed out last week, uh, God came to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. So he has the order there the same as we saw there in Zechariah, except for the one uh, variance of that. Uh, and gave them a message. The remnant were not there, or were not given the message. It was given to those two, and said, here is what I want to tell you about these people. And they're saying it isn't time to build a temple. You go tell them it is. So it was to them to do the leading and to show the people what needed to be done, and that God said to get it done. Then Zechariah starts in the middle of the book of Haggai in the eighth month, Uh, But in chapter 2, he talks about how Jerusalem will be built up again as towns without walls. Uh, Remember, he said he had planted seven in the desert, seven trees. Uh, I was going to go to Isaiah. Maybe I should do that now. Let's go back with that in mind. Let's go back to Isaiah again. Keep your finger here. 
Go back to Isaiah about uh, chapter 6, I think it is. Okay. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. So, here you have the same kind of conveyance that Ezekiel mentioned uh, in the light of what is about to happen here. Um, And Isaiah said he was of unclean lips, but God wanted somebody to go tell the story. So, God said, and Isaiah said, okay, here I am. But I wanted to go back to chapter 4 is where I was headed before I got there. That fits as well. But it says, and in that day, seven women, seven trees, shall take hold of one man, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So, they don't take hold of two men, they take hold of one. Because he is the leader of the two. And just as Moses was the leader, and uh, Aaron was the high priest, but he was second in charge. So this will be the same case in the end. And they'll take hold of the one who is the primary leader. Two witnesses and the same office, both prophets, but one will be the leader. And those seven churches will take hold of him. We'll see that here in a minute, again in Zechariah. And that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Now, who is this branch? So, seven women will take hold of this branch. Okay, that's in Isaiah 4. It'll be beautiful and bring forth fruit. Didn't it say there in Ezekiel 17 that it would bring forth fruit and be a goodly tree? And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Now we saw a clue there in Isaiah 41 and 2 that this would happen in Zion. Here it is reiterated. Everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem... When the Eternal shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof, by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Now he says in Malachi that he will come suddenly to his temple, and he will be a refiner who can stand when he appears. So here it shows that seven churches will take hold of one man in Zion, and God will wash their filth away, and he will refine them and purge them and remove that. And he will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her uh, assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, much as they had in uh, the wilderness. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. God is going to provide a defense around so that no one can harm. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the day, a time from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. So, God will call a leader. He'll go to Zion. He will come, dwell with His temple, cleanse it, 
purify it, make it clean. Remember Haggai said you've got to make a separation between the clean and the unclean. This all has to be done, and God will protect it. So, let's see if we find the branch mentioned again. Let's go to Zechariah 2. We'll see here, verse 4, there'll be towns without walls. And I says, the eternal will be to her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. So here it is in the context of the two witnesses and the remnant. Same thing we just read in Isaiah 4. Seven women, seven trees in the desert, take hold of one. And he says to flee from Babylon, the land of the north, and gather in Zion as you go on down and sing and rejoice, daughter of Zion, verse 10. Now, in chapter 3, we have a, a figure here called Joshua who can clearly be seen to be a type of Elijah, of John the Baptist, and a voice crying in the wilderness. Those all fit the situation here with Satan standing at his right hand to resist him or to make him his as the Hebrew more clearly says. And God will rebuke Satan from him and tell him this was a brand plucked out of the fire. Now notice the difference here between God saying, I will bring up a man from the north who comes from the east who is a righteous man. Here you have someone who was a brand plucked out of the fire, (laughs) about to be burned up, tribulation, third resurrection, whatever. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Now, the other character we read about that was to be told about was blind and deaf and heard but didn't comprehend fully. Here you have someone who had problems. And he answered and spoke to those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he says, I've caused your iniquity to pass, so God forgives and puts clean raiment on. Uh, That isn't what I want to emphasize, though. Uh, Down in verse 8, let's pick it up there. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you. So this one will have a congregation, uh, those who sit before and hear. For they are men wondered at, or as my margin says, men of wonders or signs. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, here's some clues for you. There will be one who has been forgiven, Satan rebuked from him, and there will be people who sit before him who will become signs and wonders, okay? Now, the signs and wonders apparently need to be used in order to bring forth the branch. Now, we read about the branch in chapter 4 of Isaiah. Be in Zion, seven women will take hold of him. But here it says he will be brought forth, be introduced, become known. As a result of, apparently, the signs and wonders that occur. Now, I'll show you another scripture that shows that here in a minute. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts. 
and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, we already read that when he returns suddenly to his temple, there in Isaiah it said, he will purge the filthiness, remove the uncleanness. So Joshua here is a type of the church which has been unclean. And did not Paul say that every high priest has to first make offering for himself and then for the people? So this isn't talking about just one individual here. This is talking about all of us, the church, that, all, that he is a type of, and we all have to be cleansed. And the ministry has to show, as it says in Haggai, a difference between the clean and the unclean. And it says in Isaiah 52, Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. So we all have to be purified and made clean and made pure before God by the removal of our sin in one day. Remember in Isaiah 44, it says He'll remove it as a cloud. So He very quickly dissipates our sin and forgives it at the time that He does this. It isn't something that just happens over a long period of time. It's something that happens quickly, suddenly, when he comes to his temple and begins to purge and cleanse. How do you purge and cleanse? Well, overcoming and growing takes time for individuals. But when God forgives, what does that do? It removes filthiness. It removes sin so that you stand clean before Him. And we have to be clean. So all of our iniquity has to be removed. That's what He's telling us. So this is the same branch, a branch from God, a proper bough. He says a, a bough will grow. It will be the right bough or the branch that God plants. And he's going to set a stone before Joshua. Now, what stone would that be? Well, that would be the chief cornerstone. Christ is the chief cornerstone. And he will be laid before us. He will cause the seven eyes. What are the seven eyes? Go back to Revelation 1 and 2. Shows the eyes of the churches. So the eyes of seven churches will be on the one who does the signs and wonders, which will not be Joshua or Zerubbabel. That will be Christ. The chief cornerstone is the one who does the signs and the wonders. But he does them among those whom he has called under this particular leader we're talking about here, Joshua. Those signs and wonders, Christ is laid before him, you see. And all eyes of the seven churches come there because of the signs and wonders that are done. And 90% of the church is going to say, Oh, they're just making that up. That isn't really from God. I don't even believe it anyway. Or whatever the attitude might be that causes them to reject what God does. But he says right here he's going to do it. So, which stone would the eyes go to? The one doing the signs and wonders. And that's Christ. Can't be anybody else. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So God calls, gathers them together, begins to 
begin to bless physically and spiritually, and everybody is autonomous and has his own vine and fig tree. This is a prelude to the millennium where everyone worldwide will have their own vine and fig tree. As I've said, it's a microcosm of the thousand years that is to come. But you've got to have something to show people of the world in contrast to what they're learning from the beast and the false prophet. You've got to have something to say, this is of God. How could you go out and preach to the world all these things about God and His kingdom and say, I don't have an example for you, but this is the way it's going to be. Oh yeah? Right. But what if you've got an example of it in Zion and Jerusalem? At that point, just Zion, because the beast will take over Jerusalem, they'll flee to to Zion. But you've got to have there a light on a hill, Zion, the majesty of Zion, that is like the millennium will be. This you could have if you would follow the law that this leader is going to be magnifying. But since you won't, you're going to die. And I'm going to show you that by giving you a plague of frogs or blood or whatever he happens to do at that time to show you what will happen to you, all of you, if you don't obey God. You could have this, but you're going to have this, see? (laughs) Has to be made very, very clear for them to be responsible for it. So this branch is a branch of Christ, and it'll be revealed at the time of the signs and the wonders. Now that's giving you a little clue ahead of time. But Joshua stands up first here, and as a result of the signs and wonders that are done here, they will look to where that is being done, and God will reveal as a result of this his servant the branch. Now let's go on to read because Zerubbabel is mentioned next. In chapter 4, first of all, it talks about the two olive trees that are giving the oil out to the seven candlesticks. Revelation 1, the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So, seven trees in the wilderness, seven women, uh, seven candlesticks. It's all talking about the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And the two olive trees, verse 14 shows, are the same anointed ones of of Revelation 11, who are the two witnesses to the world. But let's read about Zerubbabel, since that is the point. So you got these two that will be feeding the church, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Verse 6 of Zechariah 4, Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Eternal to Zerubbabel. So this individual we've been talking about, who will be from the north, come from the east, uh, have various aspects of his personality, a righteous man who did not see and did not hear, describes him and says some things to him. Say to him, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Eternal of hosts. Now he says in Joel 2 that he's going to pour out his spirit upon all of us, upon all flesh. Young, it doesn't mean all human beings. The Gentiles obviously are not going to have the Spirit of God poured out on them, nor 90% of the church. But Joel is talking about young and old man and woman, 
and they'll have visions and dreams and so on. When he pours out his spirit like he did in Acts 2. So this isn't going to be by a powerful man who is doing it on his own power. This will be done by the might, the power, the spirit of God. So he makes it clear to Zerubbabel, uh, you better be depending on me. I'm the one that gives this. And he will have shown it by the signs and wonders that are done, okay? He'll show him. Maybe I ought to go back to Zechariah, I mean to Isaiah 52 just for a moment since we're already discussing this. I was saving it till the end. But people get confused on when this guy's going to show up. Now, we've already seen that it's the result of signs and wonders uh, that Christ does with the people who sit before Joshua. Now, here in Isaiah 52, he says to wake up and put on your strength, put on your beautiful garments, in other words, the clean white robes of righteousness, not the filth that we've had, that will be forgiven, okay? And... Don't let Babylon walk on you anymore, daughter of Zion. And how he will be redeemed without money, and so on. Now, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him. Not two, him, just one. Uh, recall Isaiah 40, 41, 42, uh, where it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, just one, and that the message will only be given to one, not two. And the one will tell of them. So here it says, the voice of him that brings good tidings. Well, that's what Isaiah 40 says, to bring good tidings to Jerusalem and to Zion. We didn't read it today, but it's there about verse 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere right in there. That brings good tidings of good, that tells of a positive story that is to be, that publishes salvation... Uh, Christ in us is salvation. Uh, Emmanuel is uh, God with us, who brings salvation. That says to Zion, your God reigns. In other words, God is sovereign over the whole universe. He reigns over the church. That's part of the message. Now, so far it's only been Him. But remember, it would tell of them. All right, go on down. Thy watchmen, more than one, two, two watchmen. We see from other places that it's two. Shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing. So one is going to give the message, and then they will sing together. Now people ask me now and then, well, isn't it time for this person to show up? They forget these scriptures. And I have to say, no. The Bible tells us when this will happen. Okay? Let's read on and see when they will sing together. For they shall see eye to eye. They haven't, therefore, previous to this. We read that one is blind and deaf, having heard but not truly comprehended, believed, and followed through on. They'll see eye to eye, not before, but when the Eternal shall bring again 
Zion, or bring back Zion, or begin to bless Zion, and to deal with Zion, the church. This is not going to happen until that occurs. And that's when it will occur. Then he says, Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Eternal has comforted His people. He's redeemed them, forgiven them, redeemed them. So it's a time of redemption, a time of forgiveness of sin, a time of comfort. Where does Isaiah 40 start? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And then it says, A voice will cry that. So it comes at a time of forgiveness and redeeming. Didn't we read that God will, Christ will wash away the filthiness and purge and cleanse? We'll have white garments at that time. And on Joshua, we'll be given white garments and so, so on. And on down here, it talks about uh, verse 11, Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Then it talks about the gathering in chapter 54, which is soon after this. Because once these signs and wonders come, they will be a sign to the branch himself that indeed God, Christ, is working there doing signs and wonders. He's turned around. He's not looking away anymore. He's turned his face to his daughter of Zion and does signs and wonders. And that's when the blind and the deaf will be removed from Zerubbabel and he will come. So the when is answered. It isn't before then. It says it right here. The signs and wonders will occur, and he will then reveal his servant, the branch, in Zechariah 3. Then we go on down where we were in chapter 4. He'll see that it's not by his might nor his power, but by the signs and wonders of Christ himself. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. Mountains are governments. Didn't he say he would come upon the princes like a potter comes upon clay? Mash it. Break it if it's a vessel of dishonor. Or if it's still clay, you can mash it down says the same thing. Great mountains be flattened, like you would flatten a potter, a piece of pottery. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace to it. So it's going to be a, bless, a work that is blessed by the grace, the love, the forgiveness of God, and by his power that this will be done. So this is a fairly mild personality who has strength and power that comes from God. Not the type that would naturally be screaming like Hitler, if you will, or whatever. Different type personality. Moreover, the word of the eternal came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me to you. Now, that seems to imply to me in context that here's someone who laid a foundation, but nothing really ever came of it. A twig, a dry tree we read in Ezekiel 17, remember? Not much life to it. So, a foundation was laid and then nothing much occurred. He says, you started it, 
Now you're also going to finish it. <laughs> Get it? Now, I have someone in mind here. And the Minor Prophets series was preached nearly all of it in his presence. And he was accepting of it and was going to do it. And even considered moving his headquarters out this direction. And then got scared and wouldn't do it. Would not continue. Became deaf and blind to it. Had laid a foundation and stopped. Boom. And the last sermon I gave in the Minor Prophets series stopped right here. It was after I left that I finished that series going on through Zechariah and Malachi. So up to that point, it had been acceptable and then it was denied. But you will do it, <laughs> God says. You lay a foundation, all right. When you see signs and wonders, when I turn things around, the branch will wake up and the branch will be revealed. It's going to happen. For who has despised the day of small things? That work was small. For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the eternal which run to and fro through the whole earth. Each of the seven churches has an angel through the eyes of God overlooking those churches, overseeing them. So Zerubbabel is mentioned here with those seven. Seven trees, seven women. Whichever analogy you want to use at the moment, that's what it's speaking of. And they go throughout the whole earth because the gathering is going to be from north, south, east, and west wherever people were called and brought together. So that's how and when the leader will appear. Now let's go on a little further here to chapter 6. There's an inset chapter there of how worldwide is destroyed and goes back to Babylon. Uh, and then in 6, we have these chariots in the mountains and so on, and whatever is happening here in one case quiets God's spirit. But that isn't the point I want. Um, let's go down to verse 9. The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Take of them of the captiv captivity, even held I of Tobijah and of Jediah, who are come from Babylon. So these are going to be individuals who've come out of the Babylonian system into the wilderness, like he tells us all to do in Micah 4. People who have been called and came. And go into the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah. Then take the silver and gold and make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua the son of Josedek the high priest. Now this is the other case where Joshua is mentioned first ahead of Zerubbabel. There's a reason for that, just like there is in Zechariah 3 and in uh, Ezra. So, he says, Give these crowns to Joshua and speak to him, saying, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. So, here is another connection that what is done with the Joshua character who comes first and proclaims them, 
will be involved in bringing forth the branch, which we just read in chapter 3. When the miracles, the signs, the wonders occur, then the branch will show up, not before. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the eternal. So, a dry tree, a small twig, that didn't amount to much, laid a foundation, but then he will grow up out of his place, grow bigger, grow into a stately cedar, and build the temple. So, from a uh, not well-known entity will come something that will become worldwide known. Build the temple of God. And it. then let's see. Even he shall build the temple of the eternal, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, <coughs> and the council of peace shall be between them both. So they didn't see eye to eye, right? They didn't agree on some things. We read that back there. It says that one would come in Isaiah 52 and preach this thing, and then they would see eye to eye, that is, agree, when these miracles, signs, and wonders occur, when God turns it around. It says the same thing right here. Uh, He'll grow out of his place, and that the council of peace shall be between them both. So they will see eye to eye. They'll agree. There'll be peace between them, finally. And the crown shall be to Helam and to Tobiah and to Jediah and to Hen, the son of Zephaniah, for memorial in the temple of the eternal. So they must be uh, individuals who are prominent in the building of the temple in some form or fashion. It doesn't say much. In verse 15, then, it uh, echoes what the book of Haggai says. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Eternal, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal your God. So he tells Joshua there in Zechariah 3 to diligently obey And then, speaking of both the leadership and those who come to build the temple, that we all have to diligently obey the voice of the Eternal, and that if we do, these things will come to pass. So then it puts pressure on you and me, that if we want to be part of what God is going to do, we have to diligently obey God. And then we will be included in this. So the story is all laid out as to where the leadership really will come from, what needs to be done in preparatory work, and then when the final leader shows. Now, let's include just a little more here from Haggai, because it says the message came to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. Zerubbabel is the lead all through here except in one place where uh, Joshua took the lead, and that is in chapter 2, where he tells Joshua to be strong, and then he tells... uh, Is that the one I'm looking for? Tell Tell Joshua the high priest to be strong and all the people to be strong. It addresses him particularly there, uh, because that's the beginning of this. But 
Zerubbabel is the key figure. Notice the end of chapter 2. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Now, didn't we read he would come upon the princes as uh, a potter upon clay? And before uh, Zerubbabel in chapter 4 of Zechariah, uh, the mountains would be made plain before him. Governments knocked down, flattened. says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. This is end-time prophecy. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. Isn't that what Zerubbabel will do? And I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, now this is prior to Christ returning and setting up the millennium, at the time when he's shaking the heavens and the earth and the kingdoms, Will I take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Eternal, and will make you as a signet? For I have chosen you, says the Eternal of hosts. A signet is a banner. It is a flag, if you will. It is showing where the government, the power, the leadership of God is. So he is the primary leader. Therefore, he is a type of Christ directly who will come and do that for the whole world ultimately. But this is done in a small way, and before Zerubbabel, the mountains become plains. Via plagues, via the things that are done to the kingdoms of the world when they will not hear the message. So this is the individual that we are looking for. Uh, we have a few insights as to his personality. We have insight as to where he'll come from. And we have insight as to when he will come. When the turnaround, and we see the signs and the wonders being done by Christ before, in a congregation, wherever that is, uh, under the leadership of the one who will become the high priest. If we all diligently obey, these things will happen. So, there you are, forewarned, be forearmed, and be looking for the things that God says will happen, so that you might be better able to recognize what, where, when, and how these things come down so you can be part of it.